you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAS Studios. I think the reason we are sticking to our guns so hard is because so much of this entire negotiation is about preserving writing as a profession. Hello, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. That is Bridget Munoz Leibowitz. She's a screenwriter and executive producer of The Gordita Chronicles. It's a great show that was canceled after just two weeks and then removed from its HBO Max streaming platform. I talked to Bridget about why the Writers Guild of America is on strike and how practices like mini rooms mean younger writers from more diverse backgrounds are getting squeezed out. And she also shared what happened when she asked an artificial intelligence program to create an episode of Friends. And later, since the days of endless TV shows on streaming may be numbered, I'm going to bring you some recommendations for shows that I love. But first, you may know her projects, Sherlock Holmes, Perry Mason, and Doolittle. Susan Downey has a long track record of making films and TV shows that have mass appeal. I met up with her at the Team Downey Production Company offices in Venice, where she and her producing partner slash husband, Robert Downey Jr., are busy creating nonstop. I like black tea with a little milk and sugar. Susan served it to me in a mug from the set of The Judge. It's a film she made nine years ago, and she told me that she and Robert always buy mugs from every film location. She talked about bringing their two children with them around the world set to set, and I asked her what that was like. It's an interesting question because it predates having kids, the answer. Um, Robert really taught me because he's been doing this so much longer. He has lived his life on sets, whether it was his father's movies or when he started doing his own things. So, you know, I was very focused on the end result. We're shooting to get the product to then go in editing and have a movie that we're putting out. And he was like, no, 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 you're that the majority of your days is actually the process of making something. So you have to figure out how that becomes living. You have to live in that process. You can't live with the goal in mind because that, at the end of the day, A, you can only control so much and B, it's it's a done thing then. And, and you've just spent all of these days. So anywhere where we would go and make things, we would try and figure out how to, even with crazy hours, you know, can get a life in there and, and bring artifacts from there. And so it just naturally flowed into when we had kids that they would always travel with us. Um, he and I have a two-week rule that we've held to, which is we don't spend more than two weeks apart. And so when we can bring the kids, we do. If he needs to go off and do something and come back, it gets a little trickier as they're getting older and, and have, you know, Little League, and he plays baseball, she plays softball, they have other after-school activities, but we managed to make it work. It's a bit of our traveling circus, and they also get a ton out of it, both seeing us working and loving what we do, 
but also getting to experience other parts of our country, other parts of the world. When you were thinking as a company about the kinds of things you want to make and the kinds of things you are able to make, because they're not always the same thing, do you think there's a theme to what you're attracted to? Well, I can tell you that we're always looking for a new challenge. Um, so if something feels familiar because Robert's experienced it before or somebody else has done a great version of it, we're not going to be interested. And we tend to look at things, whether we're talking about features or television, that drive from character. And usually it's a pretty like offbeat central character. Um, and kind of figure out like what what is this piece saying what are we exploring and then it may be a genre piece it, it, across any number of genres like we we aren't specific there and I think the other component when you step back and look is that we love world creation and um, not in that traditional kind of sci-fi version you might think of but it could be 1930s Los Angeles it could be the world we built for Sherlock Holmes and really want those worlds to feel authentic and then be able to play in them. And I think the last component is you put so much blood, sweat, and tears in things that for me, we try and capture the largest audience possible. So it ends up being fairly commercial entertainment, um, even if it, again, is a little bit by design off-center. One of the things that I'm curious about is your experience before Team Downey started. What did you learn in your jobs before Team Downey that you wanted to retain mm -hmm. and the things that maybe you didn't want to emulate? Sure. Well, so right out of film school, I went to the USC film school, which I loved and uh, was so proud to come out of and immediately started working at a company called Threshold Entertainment for Larry Kasnoff. Larry had been partners with Jim Cameron, was kind of the business side of that, and started Threshold and got the rights to Mortal Kombat. And he had it set up at New Line. He was building a company. And I went and worked for a woman who was running film and television for him. What was wonderful about that job, and I was there for uh, a few years, is we were always making something. I was immediately thrust into making movies. There was a point where he was shooting the sequel to Mortal Kombat in Thailand. And he called me and he's like, look, I'm not in a position to hire someone else because the woman I'd been working for moved on. Um, so this is your shot. And I, I was like, okay, I, again, I was maybe a year and a half out of school at the time. We were always making something. There, it was not a development gig. We, yes, you developed to make it, but we had to be in production. And I think that was really important. I don't know that feeling. There's no comfort in being stagnant. So then I went and I um, moved over to Silver Pictures. And at that time, Joel was doing the first Matrix, and he really wanted a big movie, a mid-size movie, primarily action movie, and a genre picture, because he had Dark Castle with Zemeckis at the time. And it was my job to find those three movies, you know, pretty much each year. So once again, there was no option to not be making something. Um, and Joel, I have to say, uh, was an extraordinary mentor. He was very inclusive. He would let me experience everything we did, uh, whether it was taking a meeting with someone or in production or being on set. He sent me off pretty early on and like, go, you're the producer, you're a full producer, because if you don't have the full producer title, they're going to think they can call me still and I need them to be able to talk to you on set. And then through the whole post and marketing. And I was, I was there every step of the way with him. It was all very positive and set me up to start this 
company with Robert and say, we, we need to be making stuff. We can't just be talking about making stuff. I can imagine there are conversations when you're pitching a project and you're going to get either the direct or indirect question, what's Robert going to do in this? Mm -hmm. And you have to say, this is not about Robert. This is about what I'm doing. Well, it's, it's also just uh, best to be really straight from jump. And um, sometimes there are things he's absolutely eyeing to do. There are things that He's interesting, but we'll see. He'll be the first guy to read it. And then there are things that there's no place for him in it. You know, we made Sweet Tooth, and there was no role for Robert in Sweet Tooth. Obviously, with Perry Mason, it started as something he was considering, first in features, then we pivoted to a limited series, and then it became a series. And when we were ready to go, he was busy, and HBO loved it so much, were so bullish about it, they were like, well, maybe we can find someone else and we can always circle back, but we don't want to risk not having it happen. Because, you know, I was taught something very crucial by Joel, which is you, you sort of don't want to be the movie after the movie. Meaning what? Meaning uh, if you want someone to do something and they have a whole other project that's going to happen before and you're just going to wait when you're actually ready to go, you're probably better off, unless it was completely built for them and and it would be ridiculous to move off but if it could be recast and you could find someone great in this case we found Matthew Reese and never looked back and even Robert says I can't do what he does as Perry and he's extraordinary he's his biggest fan I can tell you that um, but if you wait it's there's a good chance it never happens how would you describe your creative partnership it is called team Downey um, <laughs> I'll speak very candidly I was before I came out here, I was having my weekly meeting with my therapist, and we were talking about marriage as a team. And I'm wondering, marriage and work, the team aspects, are they similar, different when it is a partnership, or is this your company? Right. Well, there's a couple parts to that question. Um, I think I'm going to start with the team downy part. The irony is we were trying to figure out a very clever name for the company. In the meantime, we were making due date, and everyone kept referring to um, not even me and Robert, because if they were talking about us, they're talking about us, Susan or Robert. But when they're talking about all the people that were working with us, they would refer to them as Team Downey. So interestingly for me, Team Downey doesn't actually mean me and Robert. It means all of the other people at the company who work with us. Um, that's one piece. But going to the, the sort of marriage question, I think the fact that Robert grew up in a household where his parents were always making things together when they were together, and the family was part of it, he and his sister were in it, this can all be seen in Senior, the doc we did that's on Netflix, um, I think for him it was only natural to find that kind of partnership, and for me it it does flow pretty seamlessly. Um, there's a very important aspect in marriage and in work um, of being good at conflict resolution. <laughs> You're nodding. And uh, I think that it helps kind of in both directions. And we have the most fun when we are working together or at least having creative conversations about things, even if it's a project that, you know, I'm a little bit more focused on and he's a little bit less focused on. Downey Dream Car is this, um, it sounds like it could be a Jay Leno series, <laughs> but what is it? Essentially, Robert had amassed this classic car collection, um, but then he also started this thing called the Footprint Coalition, which is scaling technologies to help the environment. And he was sort of realizing there's a hypocrisy in owning these gas guzzlers and yet talking about helping the environment. And so he decided to take 
a handful of those cars and do a show about modifying them to be more eco-friendly. And sometimes, To make them hybrids or plug-ins or something? Well, sometimes electric, sometimes hybrids, sometimes it's more a fuel-efficient engine. Um, and then there's always other details on it. But within it, he's actually having a conversation about the future of mobility. So part of it's this great kind of like car show for anyone who loves a good car show, um, which, by the way, I'm not the key audience for that. And I love the show because... There's a playful nature to it. Um, the cars are cool, but you are also learning something. You're learning about, you know, new vegan leathers made of mushrooms or other things like that that are going to be utilized. You're talking to other people, again, about, uh, you know, the pros and cons of hybrids and, and those kind of things. So it, it ended up being it's, – it's, first and foremost, it's honestly entertaining. <laughs> and then it's got all of that other wonderful stuff with it. And you also made a documentary, Senior, yes. that I loved. I saw it at the Telluride Film Festival. We had a great Q&A there, which I guess, is is it Emmy eligible now? It is, it yeah. is, yeah. Um, this is a project that, as I've described it, had three parents. <laughs> Robert was one, uh, Robert Sr., his late father was another, and then uh, Chris Smith, yeah. the director, was another. Um, what makes you most proud about that documentary? Uh, I think with that one, the amount of people who have seen it and reached out uh, is extraordinary. It really, really touched people. There was such an authenticity to the exploration. We Yes, we set out to make a film about Senior, but we had no idea the direction it was going to take. We didn't know he was going to try and co-op the film. We didn't know that COVID was going to probably be a big reason that is Parkinson's, you know, it, the decline was so rapid when you're not walking around as much and all. We didn't know. We just knew we had to keep capturing it. And when you make something and people come up and yeah, they can talk about, you know, oh, it's really well done and this and that. But when they, the first thing they're talking about is their father or their mother or someone who's touched, then you're like, wow, I've, I've really impacted someone. And, and that is probably the best thing about it. Thanks, Susan. Thank you. Downey's Dream Cars drops later this month on Max Senior is available now on Netflix. After the break, screenwriter Bridget Munoz-Leibowitz of the Gordita Chronicles. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. As the writer's strike continues into its second month, SAG-AFTRA, the Guild for Actors, has just voted overwhelmingly to authorize its own strike. 
That vote comes after the Directors Guild of America announced a tentative agreement on its new contract with wage hikes and an increase in international residuals. But in all those headlines, what gets lost are how creators are fighting for their art. It is incredibly difficult to get a show made. The odds are stacked against the project at every step from pitch to production and sometimes even beyond. Bridget Munoz Leibowitz knows all about that. She was the showrunner of The Gordita Chronicles, an HBO Max series which ran for just two weeks to good reviews before it was canceled. Now she's taking her frustrations to the picket line, fighting for the existence of her profession as a writer. As a member of the Writers Guild, you probably know the Guild is by far the most militant guild in Hollywood. Since 1960, the Writers Guild has been on more strikes than every other union combined. So in the context of Hollywood, how do you think writers have been seen, and as part of what this strike is about, that historical marginalization of writers by the industry over decades. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment that we're the most militant union. I take great pride in that because one of the things that I associate with the Writers Guild is a union that believes in protecting the worker and workers' rights. And I think uh, historically we have stood up for all sorts of different issues. Every few years the industry changes and we need to make accommodations for the new way things are done. And so, you know, right now what we're defending is the very existence of writing as a profession, which happened also previously, you know, um, in sort of the blacklist era when we were trying to defend against free speech. And so now we're faced with the issue that writers are being systematically removed from the writing process. So that's the ultimate marginalization, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And we're also working to preserve the opportunities for diversity to continue to exist in in writing as a profession, which again is another form of marginalization that we've found that studios aren't very sensitive to. Um, so yeah, those are some of, just some of the issues that we're out there picketing for. Were you or people you know beneficiaries of writers programs that brought in underrepresented voices? Because that has been a huge problem, not just for writers, but people in front of and behind the camera in all sorts of departments. But there have been efforts, some led by guilds, some led by the industry, about creating opportunities for underrepresented people to get a break. Yes. I was a beneficiary of the NBC Universal Writers on the Verge program, which is now the NBC launch program. Um, and I don't think I would be doing this job without it, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah. I think they're incredibly important, and the fact that they are dwindling um, is a, a real problem. Yeah, I'm surprised it's still around because many studios have gotten rid of theirs. I think Warner Brothers has gotten rid of theirs. Um, so let's talk about screenwriting as a lost art or lost profession. I'm going to set aside for the moment AI or artificial intelligence. Part of what has happened over the last few years is that the number of writers who are working on a show and the time that they have to work on that show has shrunk dramatically. At the same time, the streaming model has a difference in terms of how many episodes are produced. Networks, I was looking, you know, The Office had 20 some odd episodes back during the last strike. Uh, Streaming series might have eight, maybe 10 episodes. So let's look at all, let's look at the work issues. Fewer writers, less time, fewer episodes. 
What does that mean in a global sense about how it affects somebody like you? Yeah, well, I think in a global sense, that equals less money. I think, you know, median writer income has declined 23% over the last 10 years, and that's due to everything you just mentioned. Tell us about the mini room and why it is a bad thing. Yeah, the mini room is exactly what it sounds like. It's a writer's room of reduced size. So a regular room would be for like, say for an order of 10 episodes, eight to 10 writers would be employed. What studios have been doing is saying to writers or show creators, hey, we like your idea. We're not sure if we want to order the full season, but how about this? Why don't you and a couple of buddies break out the entire season, write a couple episodes, and then show us, and then we'll decide. So they do. And when they turn the work in, studio says, oh, two more episodes, please. We like this. And they continue to do the work. The problem with this is, is that those writers are not employed under a regular episodic agreement because the show has not been officially picked up. They're working in this weird, nebulous, week-to-week, at-a-reduced-rate contract, earning pennies on the dollar to what they would have earned if the show was actually picked up to series. Not even, not to mention the tremendous amount of work that breaking a season requires. That's the, the lion's share of any work for an entire season that's normally done you know, the, the practice before was two weeks-ish per episode. Now, breaking a season, to be clear, is where there is basically an outline, maybe not a script, for every episode, the arcs that characters will go through, that there is a a blueprint. Absolutely correct. So that's uh, the the work of 10 people reduced to two or three for far less money than they'd normally be paid. And... A normal writer's room might be together for half a year, and a mini room would be together for a couple months. Depends. But uh, then maybe weeks extended, but never... Exactly. So you can basically write... But they can they can get an entire season of a show written at this week-to-week week rate. Um, and basically, you have 10 writers that would have been employed. Now it's only two. That's a loss of a ton of jobs if you, like, if you spread that over our entire industry, which also affects pension, health, and welfare contributions, not to mention its effect on diversity. Because if you think about it, say you're a, a show creator who, who has an opportunity to get their show picked up, but they tell you you can only have one or two writers to help you, well, the pressure's on. So you're going to hire the people who have the most experience. And guess what? Those people demographically are older white men. No offense. No, they are. <laughs> you know, and, and that really, really puts um, a hindrance on, on making diversity you know, happen in the writer's room because you might, you would choose somebody, you're less likely to take a risk on someone like me at the beginning of my career because I haven't had that experience and chance to move up. So these mini rooms have been around and they obviously have a corrosive effect on writers' livelihoods. Yes. Why do writers do them? Why do they go in? Well, because they, they are an opportunity to get a show picked up, but also because we need to keep working and more and more often, these are the opportunities that are available to us because it's becoming so prevalent. So a writer will have to often string together three, four, five mini rooms. Well, maybe not five, but three or four mini rooms a year to make to make a living. And that's very, very difficult to do, especially not to go just keep harping on the diversity component. But it's very, very difficult to do, A, if you're a new writer 
or somebody who you know doesn't really have that network that you can lean on. Jobs come because you know people. It's all about connections, who you've worked with before. And if you haven't been in the industry a super long time, guess what? You don't have those connections. Let's talk a little bit about AI. So I don't know if AI can write great dialogue, but it can do things that I think a year or two ago we would consider to be unimaginable. What is the most immediate concern about AI? Because I think the idea of AI sitting down and writing, you know, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, maybe not quite around the corner, but what is right around the corner? Well, I'll say this. I think this uh, AI and the Writers Guild concern with AI is very analogous to our concern about the internet from the 2007-2008 strike. That it wasn't really clear exactly how it would become the main way to watch television, but it absolutely did. And we could see that coming. I think it's very similar for AI. AI, as you said, is uh, competent enough to write essays, term papers. I asked it to write an episode of Friends. I gave it a set of, this is ChatGPT. I, I gave it a set of requirements. I said, I want a scene with these characters in it. I want this many jokes. And this is what I roughly want to have happen. And it wrote, it wrote the scene and it kind of, kind of encompassed the voices of the cast and kind of wrote jokes, but it was enough to be alarming. And so I, I actually personally think that AI as a, as a viable replacement for a writer is really not that far off since technology goes in a J-curve. It develops very rapidly. I do think it's an imminent threat. And this is exactly why we are trying to get studios to agree that AI cannot be used and that all writers must be human. And I think it's very indicative of their intent be to see how they responded to that proposal, which is they refused to talk about it and well, said no. They said they will talk they about it. They rejected it. it. They rejected oh, yes, it that's as right. a contract term. They said they were open to having conversations about it that's right. on an ongoing basis and going forward. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the reason we are sticking to our guns so hard is because it so much actually so much of this entire negotiation is about preserving writing as a profession because in each of our the things that we are striking for there is an element of the elimination of the writer from the creative process and ai is just one of those assaults on writing as a profession that was Bridget Munoz-Leibowitz, and we should note that since that was recorded, the AMPTP has made a deal with the Directors Guild saying AI is not a person and cannot replace the duties performed by members. So it shows producers are willing to talk about it if they have to. After the break, some TV recommendations, because you never know when the streamers might remove them. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. When I first joined LAS some nine years ago, I was a film writer. I didn't really watch any TV because it was movies all the time. And that didn't make me very popular with my wife, who likes to watch a good TV series, but not necessarily by herself. Anyway, soon after I came to the station, we did a story on the first season of True Detective. And I believe I came home and told my wife, that series is better than most of the movies that I go see. To which she probably said something like, yeah, I've been telling you that for a very long time. Now I'm a little better informed when it comes to TV, but I was starting at close to zero, so I have a little catching up to do. That said, I wanted to recommend some shows that I think are standouts, and I hope some of them are new to you. First, Jury Duty. It looks like a documentary about a real trial, but everyone in it is an actor, either playing some sort of realistic or bizarre character, except for one person, Ronald Gladden, who really believes he's juror number six. It is on Amazon Freebie, which you can find on Amazon. I'm only calling you because you're the foreman. Has she been sleeping a lot? I think this is like the fourth or fifth time we've hit her today. Have we caught her right away? or I want to make sure she's not missing the bulk of the testimony. That one I couldn't tell because her back was to me, so I don't know. If you're able to, to try to keep an eye on her. I just was looking down because it was uninteresting. And every time I looked down, somebody would poke me like they thought I was asleep. I was maybe asleep one time. Next, you probably have heard about and likely have seen Queen's Gambit, the 2020 Netflix series about a chess prodigy. Before he made Queen's Gambit, writer and director Scott Frank created the Western series Godless, which you can find on Netflix. It's pretty violent, but some of the toughest characters are women. Here's Jeff Daniels, the show's villain. God? What God? Mister, you clearly don't know where you are. Look around. There ain't no higher up around here to watch over you and your youngins. This here's the paradise of the locust, the lizard, the snake. It's the land of the blade and the wrath. It's godless country. The sooner you accept your inevitable demise, the longer y'all gonna live. The third show is a BBC series called Sherwood, which you can find on the streaming service BritBox. It's about a murder and a manhunt in an English town still divided over the coal mining strikes in 1984. It's based on a true story. The writing by James Graham is spectacular. One monologue about British history left me speechless. God, we're an old country. Look at this place. 
so much past. Which means, unfortunately, quite a lot of mistakes. But it's not the getting things wrong that's the problem. It's the sweeping under the carpet of it all and refusing to just bloody look at it and learn from it. God, I love this series. Finally, the Netflix documentary series, Don't Fuck With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. It's about an online crowdsourced amateur investigation into a series of acts of animal cruelty that lead to something even worse. Are you ready? The internet is boundless. There's the happy places. And then there's another part of the internet, the seedy underbelly. I was on Facebook one day. And I found this video. I pressed play. People went nuts. So we started looking. He could have been anywhere on the planet. This person wants to play a game of cat and mouse. And I'm up for that. Warning, this is not a comedy like only murders in the building. But I was sucked into the story, and I think you will be too. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman, who is also my session director. The editor is Suzanne Levy. Listeners like you help make Retake possible. So please donate now at elias.com forward slash join. And thanks. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Elias Studios operates within the homelands of the Gabrielino Tongva people. We recognize the painful history of displacement, settler colonialism, and erasure of the people, their language, and their sovereignty. Visit Elias.com slash land for more information. We encourage you to get curious about the land on which you live and work. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. If there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.